Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer and engineer Elton Charles. Currently based in Nashville, Tennessee, but originally from New Jersey, Elton showed a strong proficiency for the instrument that eventually led him to attending the Berklee College of Music. After moving to Nashville in 2012, Elton's experience has been a blur of touring, recording, and building his musical relationships within the music community. When not touring with the multi-award-winning country duo Thompson Square, or supporting up-and-coming artists and writers in Music City, Elton is building upon studio clientele offering his talents as a drummer and producer. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. This always helps us grow. If you like what we're doing here at Working Drummer Podcast and you want to help sustain this ongoing project, there's a way that you can help, and there are many progressive rewards for those of you who can help. I'm talking about free Skype lessons from pro drummers like Ben Caesar and Carter McLean, a free Working Drummer t-shirt, access to bonus content, shout-outs, Twitter follows, and even a personal feature on you within an episode. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash working drummer. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone you can also find a link to the new sublime birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer in the near future we've got much more to share in regard to crush drums and this dynamic company for now check out crush drums at crushdrum.com Here's my conversation with Elton Charles. Is building a studio and getting more involved in production and running a studio, is that something that you want to focus your attention on? Or do you see that as just a regular part of what you do? I, I think it's part of, yeah, it's a definitely, because I'm, I'm also an engineer. Yeah. And um, I, I've actually owned two studios in Nashville um, that, have gone under for various reasons. The first one it was on Music Row. Uh, the owner sold the building, and it was like, "Hey, you got 60 days to get out. We're demolishing." It's now a parking lot. It's like 16th and Edge Hill, three buildings in the parking lot. That was my building. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. It's right across from the the Moose uh, Grooming Lodge or whatever. 
there's a parking lot like randomly in between the buildings. That was the building. I think I was supposed to go to a party there. That Probably. Was, and, and and like this is the address. Wh- where is it? It's <laughs> there's yeah. nothing here. There is that, and then I, I was part of a a partner in a studio in Berry Hill. My partner and I, we just we kind of parted ways. Uh, he wanted it to be his own studio, which was totally respectable, and we you know we helped him get off the ground and. Well, I just basically took my equipment and put it in, uh, it's in my basement now. So I work out of my basement, like yeah. drum tracks or vocals or mm-hmm. full production, wh- wh- whatever, whatever the need is. Right. And, and we were talking before I hit the record button here, yeah. but we were talking about just zoning laws here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting to think that there are different types of zoning laws throughout the country that could affect the way you work what do you think you'll do if if it turns out that it's against the law mm-hmm. i mean basically it's just your home office at that point you have to keep it you know under wraps and right the, the problem is it takes one person to to go to the city and just be like hey this is some shady stuff going on here yeah. they come check it out shut you down yeah because as, as it doesn't matter whether you it's like well i'm not taking any money if yeah. that one person is like no i gave them a check for this they yeah. cashed it it's right, right here right you're screwed yeah, and I'm ne- I don't necessarily know what happens when they shut you down. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like you're not allowed to use the space or what. Yeah, I, who knows, I don't understand. Man. But um, I mean, because it's it's illegal right now, and everyone I know has a home studio. Yeah, even the the bigger mixers they have like rooms fully treated, you know, hundred thousand dollar rooms at their house. Mm-hmm. That this is this is what they do instead of renting out a studio every day for you know, $1,000 a day, whatever the, the bigger studios charge. Mm-hmm. You're at your house. You have no overhead because it's your house. You're already paying, either renting or own it. Yeah. And you can invest all your money and time and spend all time. You can get up in your pajamas and do, you know, whatever you have to do. That's my dream. Right. To track drums in my underwear. That's it. That's what I tried it in a real studio <laughs> and that wasn't, it was frowned upon. <laughs> But that, that's all that... They were clean underwear, man. I'm oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, tidy whities and, you know, you got to go for it, man. But that's really our, our our dream is like... Because at that point, it's literally an overhead. You don't even have to get in your car. Yeah. You have everything set up. You just, yeah. oh, okay, cool. What track is this? Maybe chart it out, whatever, you know. So, and, and we're just talking Nashville here. Mm-hmm. And you think with, like all the extra traffic that we're dealing with in the last three years with everybody moving to town, that they would promote the idea of having home studios so people wouldn't get in their cars and, you know, get out on the streets anymore than they already are. But, I mean, there's also, I see their side of it, too, because of the noise. Most people cannot, like, especially drummers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so expensive to actually have a room that's somewhat soundproof. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, we have the loudest instrument and an impulse. So, like, a drum, a snare drum hit, a kick drum hit is the hardest thing to isolate anything from. Mm. It goes through air, goes through the wood, the, yeah. anything close by, it'll go through. True. Um, so, even, like, the studio I'm trying to build, mm-hmm. we have, like, 12-inch concrete blocks with reinforced steel and then filled with concrete. And then another layer of the uh, of a, a wall on the inside with insulation. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure nothing gets out. Yeah. So you can go, you know, you have an idea at two o'clock in the morning or you're re- recording something like, hey, we're gonna, we need a kick drum or snare drum hits or something. Right. No one's going to complain. No one's going to hear that. Right. But if you're doing it at your house and if you don't have a basement, which most places in Nashville don't. Yeah. Um, you're kind of, 
at the mercy of your neighbors. Yeah. But that's an interesting point. You talk about soundproofing and the cost of materials. Mm-hmm. And yet, to get good sounds, you need space. You need air. You need a big... You, a drums, drum sounds especially. We Our instrument sucks because in order to get it right, you need a big space with very expensive equipment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The advantage of learning how to record mm-hmm. as a drummer is you take on the responsibility and say, look, I know you have your home studio. You've got... A simple setup here, but if you need drum tracks, I'm available. I'm here for you. Right. I've got the space. I've got the technology. Um, email me your track, and I'll do my thing. Right. And so I, I feel like it, it's a blessing and a curse. Oh yeah. Uh, where it's kind of like, look, you're not going to want to invest as a say a keyboard player, guitar player, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you have your home studio, you need a bedroom. Right. You need a bedroom, you need two preamps, and a DI. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're a guitar player, you need a closet and a 57, maybe two mics, maybe a 421 or whatever. Like, two at the most and a DI, and you're yeah. good. You can yeah. buy an interface for 800 bucks and your MacBook Pro, and you're good to go. Right. And for drummers, it's you need 8 to 12, yeah. 16 channels if you really go way overboard. Yeah. Um, and some place to do it. Yeah. You know, I've I've seen programs you can imitate uh, rooms. There's like a plugin for Oceanway. Yeah, they they met, they did an impulse response of the rooms in different positions, so you can actually like feed your drum sounds into their actual room, uh, a, a copy of their room in a reverb. Oh wow! And kind of get close. Yeah, and it, it works. I mean, I've I've used it on a bunch of mixes that come through that are, you know, yeah, drums recorded in someone's bedroom. Like, okay, well, we need to still make it sound big. Yeah, there's ways around it. it it's still down to the player and the instrument. Yeah. So if yeah. you've got great sounding drums and a great player, the room you can work around for the most part. If it's completely dead, it's almost better than almost in weird reflections. Gotcha. Because then you can work around it. You get like the what they call like the New York sound. It's really tight, really mm-hmm. like the Michael Jackson thriller. Mm-hmm. That was as dead as possible. Took off the front head of the kick drum and everything. Apparently it was J.R. Robinson mm-hmm. was playing on that. And um, they had acoustical panels or um, foam in between the drums in a way where he had to alter the way he played in order to get the isolation they wanted. Wow. So it's like the hi-hat, and then you had three or four inches of just insulation so that it wasn't bleeding into the snare drum, so the snare drum wasn't bleeding into the kick drum. Wow. And he had to play it in a really weird way to get it yeah. right. But it's, you can get that sound, and then the room was dead. Yeah. But then even, have you seen the documentary, um, it's that room in L.A. with the Neve board? Oh, um, the, um, Sound City. Yes. So their room was a really big room that was dead. And that's how they did the Rumors album. That If you listen to those drum sounds, Love it. it's just the drums. There's almost no room in there. Yeah. And then they added reverb through a plate. Uh, they have a couple big plate reverbs over there. Um, so you can... It's just depending on what sound you want. If a room is dead, you can't make it live. And you can you have to do a lot of substitutes. But if a room is really live, you can always tone it down. Mm, okay. So that that's the that's kind of the the school I come from is like I want a, a room as live as possible, right? And then I can I can use it for different sounds. Yeah. Otherwise, you're kind of stuck with one, and then it's up to the processing that you have to get a bigger drum sound if you want it. Right. Yeah. 
did your interest in recording in the studio come before or after drums for you? Where did that, where did that come from? It was drums first. Uh, I mean, I, I still don't know where I got the, the inspiration for drums. I think my parents just were like, I think he's hitting on things. Let's try to see if he can. Because <laughs> I started on piano, and I'm still a terrible piano player. But um, I started there, and they, my parents got me a drum set in like 95. And I still have it. It's my first. It's a Pearl Export. It still sounds fantastic. I love that drum kit. Yeah, yeah, sure. But, um, it started there, and then towards the end of middle school, high school, I started getting. I had a band in my mm-hmm. high school, and then we needed to figure out a way to record. So we all pulled our money together. We got this little Boss like eight track recorder. Yeah. And of course, all the rehearsals were at my place because I had a drum kit there. Right. And then so it's like, okay, now we need microphones. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to Guitar Center and however much knowledge they had at the time <laughs> yeah exactly they're like oh well you need this you need uh oh well audix sells this this kit of like seven microphones it's all you need for like a drum kit and mm-hmm. we can figure stuff out after that so mm-hmm. that's where that kind of started just with a, an eight track recorder with a really limited set of or really limited escape of what it could do it was preamps and then a little screen, like one of those black yeah. and green uh, liquid crystal liquid crystal screens that could. And you have to do you it. have to go through the menu and right. back out of it to get to different places, right? Right. It was just awful. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> it was great, and I still have to find it. It had its own hard drive, right. and the only way to get the get your sounds or songs off of the hard drive was you had to master it. Giant air quotes, master it, and then burn it on a CD. Oh wow! That was it. That was the only thing you had. And it was like okay, well. Did that for a couple of years and then um, got into uh, Berkeley College of Music, mm-hmm. where, where I went. And the first year, I had a bunch of friends that were just taking advantage of the recording situation we have there. They had like eight or nine studios. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in the music production program, you got to use them. Right. And you have to do projects. And the more you use them, the, they let you have time. Oh, wow. Um, so I became the studio rat. I was the guy like drum teching and or running cables and or miking and or, uh, yeah, can you move that EQ while wait? Uh, I started just learning from there. Yeah. And then figuring out like, okay, well, this is what a real studio looks like. This is how it works. This is what I need. Yeah. These are the things. So, and then started building from there. Yeah. Um, had a random friend call me, said his uncle was selling a Pro Tools system. And I had never really worked with Pro Tools at that point, but I mm-hmm. worked with it enough that I knew basic commands and yeah. how to work it. So ended up um, buying that from him. And he, he had worked on some... It was like Latin Grammy-nominated stuff, and he was upgrading to the newest level of Pro okay, Tools. Okay, sure. When I, when I bought in, it was Pro Tools 7 with a, an HD system, which was like the top of the line, everything. That's what the studios were functioning on at that point. Wow. And got a ridiculous deal because I knew it, it was his, you know, they're a relative of somebody, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, well, it's going to good, a good home. And sure. I just need to get. I need to get rid of this. Yeah, it's just got to go because I've got more stuff coming in, and I don't really need the money. Mm. Blessing, absolute <laughs> blessing. I was like, okay. And most of my life, all the the nice instruments and pieces of gear I have have been those. Like, how did you get that deal? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I just, I just happened upon me, and I've just been very lucky. Right. Um, but started there, and then started recording at my uh, apartment in Boston. 
It sounds like getting into drums and getting into recording, mm -hmm. the learning process was in tandem almost. Uh, you yeah, know, kind absolutely. Of together. Do you think that learning to record and affected the way you approach the drums? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the way I've seen most drummers grow up, they spend so much time on their instrument, you kind of get into a rabbit hole of not knowing what it sounds like past what you hear. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people, uh, they really credit people when they're like, oh, well, you played to the room. Yeah. And you know what your volume level is, you know, all your tones and all that stuff. But when you hear it on the other side of the glass, you know, that really cranked up high pitched snare drum doesn't translate as well. Uh huh. Um, for a ballad or for what it, like it's it's you learn different tones different drums different mm -hmm. tunings mm -hmm. for every situation and how it translates right because we all listen to records like oh my god the the drum tone on this record or on uh any record you hear everyone wants to emulate those sounds yeah i know guys in town that tune their toms to specific songs because they love the way that drum sound is so they have four toms that record had four toms they they tune them exactly the same. Okay, yeah. and it sounds great. They know what they they know what they were right. going for, but it took right. them years to get there. Yeah. But now seeing it from the side, it's like okay, well, I know what what drums need to sound like in front of my face in order to sound great under a microphone. Because sometimes that doesn't translate as well either. No, it could be completely different. You're right. like, man, the snare drum sounds awful when I'm sitting right in front of it, but mm -hmm. where the microphone placement is mm -hmm. to tape you're like oh well that there it is that's it yeah and then depending on what the engineer did with eq moves or compression i mean it it can completely transform you could take this drum sound yeah just the same thing the drum sounds like absolute garbage mm -hmm. but put it through a bunch of compression and some eq and it's it's the god snare drum that you've been mm -hmm. looking for mm -hmm. And I mean, if you if you guys are looking at uh, like Aaron Sterling, yeah, he's done a, a bunch of videos, and he's like, yeah, well, I just mess with this drum. I mean, it sounds okay, whatever. Mic it up, yeah, yeah. There you go. And we're all like, that it sounds amazing. He's like, yeah, well, it's just I try weird things, and that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. You just get lucky, right? I have a snare drum that I've been using a lot in the last few years live, and people are like, man, that snare drum sounds good. I'm like, yeah, but in the studio, not so much. Really? Like, it's the opposite. Like, it, yeah. it, it has a thing. And it works with some tunes, but I have, like, live snare drums and I have studio snare drums. Studio, okay. You know, that just kind of just work that way. Where I, I'm just not inspired by them live. They don't speak to me, but, but they translate through the microphone in a special way. Mm -hmm. You know, or they're more diverse depending on the tuning we're live i need it just to sound great right you know right. right away and and diverse unless i've got steve jordan's drum tech next to me right switching no out exactly <laughs> yeah every tune like oh different hi-hats different snare drum let's go <laughs> uh, um when you were growing up did you take lessons i i did um i i probably started lessons in around sixth grade Mm -hmm. It's. I started band in middle school, and my drum teacher at the time, or the, the just the band teacher in general, recognized that I had a certain aptitude for for mm -hmm. playing. And it wasn't like it, it was just, hey, he's taking to this pretty seriously. Are you? Do you take lessons? Do you? Yeah. What the, What is the deal? Like I don't know. I mean, my parents come from a third world country. 
Mm-hmm. Um, my dad's a trucker. So we, we don't know anything about music at all. Hmm. Our family is completely out of the music business. They know about lessons for yeah. certain things, but as a, you know, as a hobby, as a, a thing you do for fun. Okay. So we ended up taking lessons with my uh, concert band teacher uh-huh. to the point where he, I mean, a couple of weeks, he's like, I can't, we, we need to take you to someone serious. Yeah. Because it's like, you, you just, I took in what he, what, I, what he was giving me, but he also wasn't that experienced of a teacher. Oh, okay. So he was just trying to see what I could do. Sure. And then I got referred to uh, a drum teacher in Morristown, New Jersey, um, Dr. Ken Pasick. And he was had a doctorate in percussion, played for uh, many, many like orchestras. He did a lot of his own um, percussion recitals and absolutely super schooled scholar drum uh, percussionist. Wow. And I studied with him from middle school all through high school. But the funny thing was we never touched a drum kit. <laughs> wow. And that that it hurt me going into college just because... I was very technically proficient uh-huh. in snare drum reading, and we did marimba, we did gong techniques, anything under the sun percussion-wise. Yeah. But what I wanted to do was play drum kit, but I had to do all this stuff before I could get to that before I could get to that part of the lessons. Yeah. And I initially struggled through everything else. I struggled through um, the marimbas and, and xylophones and, and uh, snare drum reading was easy up to a point. Yeah. And then you get to the certain, like the Sarone book or a couple other things. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh, okay, this is, this is not good. You practice for three, three lessons worth. And he's like, you still don't have it. And I was like, I, I'm trying, <laughs> I can make it through half of it. And, uh, so we'd have to do that first before we got to drum kit. Drum kit was like the treat. Okay. And I never, I never got to it before I got to college. Before you got to college. Right. But was Berkeley on the horizon for you? For- um, no, cause, okay. uh, I mean, my parents saw it as a, it was a hobby. It was something he did for fun. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was actually on track to become a pharmacist. Oh, wow. My high school had a accelerated program that you could opt into as a freshman. Um, and you got to pick a track. It was like science and medicine. Um, there was a social studies one. There was a languages one. There was a... Um, a business track and then your high school experience was all of a sudden tailored to that field because my, my i mean my parents were hey they offer this it's free you're gonna do one pick one yeah and now and and you say your your parents are they first generation no i'm first generation you're first generation yeah. okay can so, i ask where your parents are from uh we're from a country called guyana in south america yeah and they okay. they both moved over here i think my dad came in 19 19- 86 and my mom came in like 1987 or 1988. Okay. Okay. Um, it's so yeah. interesting because when you talk about what brought us to the drum set, everyone's story is different, you mm. know, and getting into this really non traditional vocation that we find ourselves in. But my wife worked with, um, uh, did refugee resettlement for about seven years of her oh, life wow. and okay. worked with all these different people in different cultures mm. whose work ethic and value system is so different than ours in the United States mm-hmm. because we've, we've, I think for generations have become accustomed to not taking for granted the situation, but I mean, it's, 
it's been so easy to, to not think about, well, I need this job. I need that. And it's like, we had, there's been more flexibility. So I, I'm just curious to know like what kind of values does, do your parents, I mean, it sounds like your parents were very, very supportive of what you wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> so that's, no? that's a different, that's well, so I mean, my dad is the perfect example of the American dream. Mm. He came to this country with $50 in his pocket from mm. Ghana. And, um, I mean, he worked a deli, he worked a couple other jobs, lived in this shoebox apartment in Brooklyn. And all of a sudden, uh, we had some relatives already over here. Mm -hmm. And some of them were like, Hey, this guy has a trucking company. Um, they're offering jobs. All you have to do is drive. Yeah. And so my dad got it. Like he had his license trans. Well, I don't know if it was a transfer or he had to retake the test or whatever, but got his CDL and was able to drive for this one company in Jersey and drove for years. And then all of a sudden started his own company. It was just LC trucking, like Leonard Charles trucking, um, and built up this, this entity around him and my, and family we would bring from Guyana. Like it was, it was a very community based, um, employment kind of thing. We mm -hmm. Guyanese people leave from the country. It, it's, there's only about 200,000 people left there. Cause everybody leaves everybody. Wow. Like it is in shambles, uh, third world country, everything. Yeah. So they leave and they kind of only settle in one or two places. It's New York, uh, a place called, um, Richmond Hill in New York. It's probably 15 minutes from the airport. Okay. There's a gigantic community there. They okay. just, they got out of the airport. They're like, nope, we're staying here. <laughs> and then the the easiest way to get into this continent is is Canada. Right. Like the U.S. is very strict on their immigration process. So mm -hmm. most I have a ton of family in Canada, and they live right around the Toronto area. Yeah. They haven't moved very far. Yeah. And. So we, when we have family come, they need places to stay, and, and so they either stay with us or they find other places around where my family was based uh -huh. to stay. So I lived on one street, and six or seven houses were all Guyanese people, like distant cousins. This person knows that person's mother. It, yeah. It's all relationship-based. Wow. wow. And my dad employed all of them. Okay. Wow. Uh, for for uh, dispatching, for trucking, for vans, for anything. Uh -huh. Um and slowly built his company. And then on my mom's side, um, they, my, my grandma and grandpa came over to the U S first hmm. to make, to, to make money, have a place to bring their kids over. But they, that meant like leaving my mom at 16 and she had an 18 year old brother and then a, two younger brothers. And she was the head of the household. She had to cook clean, make sure they all got to school wow. for five years Okay, at 16. She was the head of their household. Yeah. So they came here, um, bought a house, got everything set, brought all the kids up. Mm -hmm. And then that's when my mom and my dad met at a, at a wedding. And then my mom was working with my dad. She was dispatching for the trucking company while feeding me or whatever, mm -hmm. when, I, when I was little. And so her youngest brother started trucking as well, and then they merged with my dad's company, and now they have this company called Shawnee Trucking. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still it's based in the Meadowlands in mm -hmm. New Jersey, but going from fifty dollars, it's now a, a multi million dollar trucking company. That's amazing. 
And so through through that, like that's the work ethic that they brought here. So what do they think about what you're doing? They it took them a while to come around to it because I didn't even know it was an option. It right. was you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or some kind of somebody that makes money because we weren't able to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you choose music. Well, so <laughs> I, I ended up this long story to, to come to this. Yeah. I, all my applications out of high school were for pharmacy school. And the guitarist in my band was like, hey, have you heard of Berkeley? I'm like, oh, you see Berkeley in California? Uh, I can't get in there. He's like, yeah. no, 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 Berkeley College of Music. I'm like, college of music? You can go to school for music? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I applied, and I think I'm going to get in, but we'll, we'll see. Like, the auditions are in a couple months. Mm-hmm. So my last application was Berkeley. And I decided, okay, well, I'm going to have to do I'm, I'm going to try it and see what happens. I don't know if I'm good enough. I had to hide it from my family because I knew what they would they would probably kill me. Yeah. And the only problem was I had a guidance counselor that didn't really like me. So when she realized what I was doing, she called me with my parents like, yeah, I just want to talk over your grades and all that stuff. And then dropped the news on my dad like, oh, hey, by the way, he's applying to music school. And I thought I was going to get disowned. It was, it was like a slap in the face to my dad just because he worked so hard to get me to a place where I can do, I can make, you know, $200,000 a year or more, Mm -hmm. whatever, doing something in the medical profession and have a great life for myself. He's never seen a musician except for the guys on the side of the road uh, in their subways playing, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So it took him up until about 20, I'd say 2012, whenever I I moved here and had my first big touring gig uh, with this guy, Glenn Templeton. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a bus and, and, and toured the whole U.S. and we played a gig in Pennsylvania that they came out to. Yeah. And I brought them backstage and I'm like, hey, guys, here, come check out the bus and all that stuff. And my dad was like, all right, son, you, I, I see like you're, you're actually doing things. Because up until that point, it was just school. And then, yeah, dad, I, I still don't have a gig yet, but I'm working on it. I'm playing downtown. He's like, okay, well. <laughs> when you get over this, yeah, get like, this out just, of your system. Just, uh, just and then the other part is, I mean, I I haven't graduated from Berkeley. I had to leave, and just because the calling was here and I had mm-hmm. opportunities opening up, and it was yeah. just take it now or or right, right. Because the 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 hardships in in Berkeley, they have a recording program. Uh, it's called Music Production Engineering, uh-huh. and I had applied. It's a separate application application process once you get in. Oh, and so you get into the school and then you're not allowed to apply for this program until your second semester. After the second or third semester, I applied again. And this time I'd been a studio rat. Now I've okay. taken every chance. There were these sessions called, they were like uh, two to six. It's 2 a.m. to 6. Oh, wow. 6 So before you were in the recording program, mm-hmm. you were doing all those things you mentioned before where you were right. running cables and setting up stuff. Because like no that. one wanted to do it. It was yeah. it was grunt work at yeah. 3 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. You've got class at 8. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. But I knew that was my way in. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I was the first call quote-unquote assistant mm. to show up and like hey man i'll be there at one just make sure everything's mic'd and cables are run and mm-hmm. the console's set and whatever mm-hmm. so I graduated from that to all of a sudden people realize i could play now i'm on sessions now yes. i'm playing drums for 
you know, I, I'd get called at midnight. Hey, man, are you free for a two to six? They're like, oh, jeez, I'm about to go to bed. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be there. And yeah. then have to drag your drums on the T, the, the train that ran from back and forth from Austin there. Wow. If if it wasn't if it was that late, I'd have to find a taxi or a friend with a car or something oh, wow. like that to, okay. to just get there. Um, and then started doing that, and then on sessions where they had other drummers, and they were fantastic guys mm. that were out there. And, and some of them have really big gigs now, mm. not necessarily here, but in L.A. and mm -hmm. New York. Um, I'd be assisting. It'd be like, okay, well, let's. Uh, yeah, how about you you EQ the drums and, and set the compression, whatever, while I'm working on this, whatever, and we're going back and forth mm -hmm. and j learning, having time on the consoles and using equipment that I've never seen before right? or only heard of yeah, without being in the program. And I don't know if Berkeley hears about this. They might not <laughs> like that. But at the same time, like that was my learning experience for yeah. recording. I got to work with Susan Rogers, who recorded Prince. She did like the, oh, wow. the pur pur Purple Rain album. She was here. He, uh, she was his first call engineer. Wow. She'd be working at the studio all night, all day, whatever, uh -huh. three o'clock in the morning, get to the studio. Yeah. yeah. We could work with her. She taught us soldering. She taught us like how to build speakers and, and, and all. it's, it was a very useful class that most people didn't take. Mm. So all of a sudden I've got, I've armed myself with the knowledge to build things and basic signal flow and working in a studio and, and learning studio etiquette, which is something that right. schools can't teach you. Right. So for example, uh, like coming in as an assistant and not making a comment on what's being recorded, <laughs> coming in and be like, Oh yeah, man, that sounds like that new, uh, Marcus Miller record. What? That's not, that's not wait, guys. We need to change. This is not good. Right. I Even don't want to sound trying like that. to be complimentary. Right. You could, derail something absolutely wow okay and then working with people of different different tempers different yes you, you never know who's sensitive who's you just have to be the most emotionally neutral person in the room <laughs> you know someone says jump you say how high and that is it Last things, um, last big things at school that happened before I left. We had this, uh, Alex Acuna come through. Yeah, and yeah. I've always admired him as a percussionist, as a, as a as a drummer, and as a person because he's kind of another self-made man, um, American dream story. Mm -hmm. But his philosophy when he had just moved or just mm -hmm. got here was. You have to say yes to everything. Hey, Alex, do you play? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when do you need me? Mm -hmm. And then he'd find someone to teach him enough to be dangerous mm -hmm. right. um, to just make the session. Because as, so, as soon as you do that, people will call you again. People will call you again. Mm -hmm. And that's what I ended up doing a lot Yeah. was, hey, man, I've got a I've got a pop session and it's or we're doing a bakutsi tonight and you need to um, you're going to have to bring a couple of different drums. And I'm like, OK, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> Two seconds later, I wasn't on a computer looking for, okay, uh, what parts of the, like, what am, what am I doing on what drums and what, like, what does it have oh, to sound wow. like? Okay. And figure, like, okay, this is what we do. And you get there, and you're like, oh, yeah, man, sounds great. I'm like, cool, dude, that's all I could ask for. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm sweating my butt off, like, just like, <laughs> you know, it's fake it till you make it, but also... yeah you know that you have the ability to do it. You just, you know. I think it's, there, there's, a, again, I, I think there's that, but there's also 
you're creating a certain amount of job security where somebody can rely on you. Mm -hmm. I, I had a producer say, hey, can you build tracks with this program? The answer was no. Mm -hmm. But I said, oh, yeah, for sure. Right. For sure. It's not like it had to be done that right then and then there. Right. But I, I had a little bit of a window of time. said, so sure, leave the rehearsal. Hey, man, listen, can you help me with this program? Exactly. You know, then all of a sudden, not only are you their drummer, but you're their programmer. You're their this and that. And it's like, oh, I love this guy. And in a sea of insanely great players hmm. in depending on where you live, but in this town for sure, right? you can separate yourself by saying, yes, I can do this, I have this skill, I have that skill, right. I have all these things. And sometimes it's hard to anticipate, but if you have a work ethic and if you have the grit to figure out what needs to be done, mm -hmm. you could do it instantly. And the resources are there, man. Right. YouTube, we, friends. YouTube is... Probably the greatest Podcasts. teacher. Podcasts. <laughs> and then our, especially Nashville, our brotherhood, I'd like to call it a brotherhood of sure. drummers that we have for whatever you need. I mean, we've we've got the guys that are extremely versed in the Ableton and building tracks and doing yep. all that stuff. Yep. Or the guys that are doing, you know, I'll see someone do a solo and I'm just like, whoa, where did that come from? And realize they have a marching background. Exactly, or yeah. whatever, whatever, like... If you have a, something that ails you, something that you you really want to learn about, there is somebody in this town, and they're all willing to help. Yeah, and I I can't thank like Nashville and everybody in there in here mm -hmm. for that because I've learned so much from everybody. Yeah, me Neither, too, man, constantly. Yeah. And we're we're surrounded by monsters. There's mm -hmm. some dudes in this. Or most of the guys in town are mm -hmm. just like. I, you look at that and it's it's almost discouraging, but then you realize it's like no, that's just they do. That's well, what they do. And, and I I might have mentioned this before when I first moved to town, I was working at Forks Drum Closet, mm -hmm. and I, I I was meeting like these incredible players, you know, um, uh, Greg Morrow, Tommy Wells, Eddie Bears, you know, all these guys that oh, I had yeah. read about, and they were the sweetest, humblest dudes, and yet. Through a series of conversations and things that happened, I learned very quickly that you get hired or not hired because of what you do and what mm -hmm. you do well. And somebody will choose Eddie Bears over Greg Morrow because they want what he does. And that right. was a lesson alone. Not that I had to sound like them, but that I could just, I do what I do best and use my voice. Mm-hmm. And someone will say, I, I need that on this song, or I need that on this record, or right. this gig. That's where you find your place. Um, because otherwise, it's overwhelming. Yeah. It's oh, daunting. Yeah. yeah. You can't be everybody and everywhere mm. at the same time and play everything. But this being about you, I've, I've got a couple questions leading into something. Is there one compliment that you get a lot of? Is there a compliment that you hear from people? Um, I mean, the, the, the funny thing is it's not necessarily a compliment. Like the, the way people give compliments is mm -hmm. a little interesting and, and it's not nothing against them. I'll, I'll hear, you know, man, the drums sound great. Your drums sound great. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tribute to the guy who made the drums and the drums and the heads and all that stuff. No. At the same time, you have to have a player yep. to get there. And 
I mean, during recording sessions, I could have the same, you could have the same drum kit and five drummers play it. It'll sound completely different in five ways. Right. right. Um, so usually about that, it's, it's usually like how the, the drum sound or timing, like mm-hmm. solid solidity. Right. Um, I, I played whiskey jam the other day and everyone was like, dude, you were, you were just solid. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of licks. I can't do the whole chop thing, and yeah. it was never my thing. But I remember sitting in practice rooms day in, day in, day out, like playing the the Taylor Swift record, the, the <laughs> like or something. Like it was always pocket stuff. Yeah, um, Ch- Chaka Khan or anything. Like it was always groovy. That's what that was my thing. Right, was getting it, making it feel good. And I figured the chops would come later. I've just never put the time in right. for that. It was never my thing, you know. But I think that that's pretty much it's it's always feel and um, making others feel comfortable. Yeah, it, yeah. it's and and just being able to adjust to say a bass player that pushes things or or pulls it back a little bit or you know sit it like. You you have to be the 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 bottom line of hey the time is here, mm-hmm. but you still have to adjust to certain people. Sure, sure. And and, and everybody plays the adjustment game. It's yeah. not like I adjust to you only. You adjust to me only. It's you know everyone's got a it's a moving target. Yeah, constantly. Uh, long before we met, um, I've seen your playing. Mm-hmm. I've seen you online. I've heard your playing, and your backbeat. I mean pocket. But specifically, where you place the snare drum, mm. instantly I notice it's like, oh wow, that's great. Something about that is driving without be- feeling on top. Mm. As a driving uh, force behind it, just it's just like I love not only that, but it was the sound of that you're getting from the snare drum, depending on the video or who was recording. Oh. But I noticed that. <laughs> I noticed that. Thank you. And I've known Victor Broden for years. Oh, yeah. Uh, bass player uh, extraordinaire. And uh, I know you guys have worked together a lot. So I reached out to him. I said, hey, Elton's coming over. We're going to be recording. I said, uh, any thoughts? And by the way, uh, one of the things I want to ask him about is his backbeat. And Victor's like, I'm so glad you picked up on that because <laughs> that's that's what he thinks is great as well, mm. you know. So I'm I'm trying to figure out kind of like where that came from, what you've used to focus on, and I think you kind of answered that. You know, you were listening to music that was groove oriented, mm-hmm. and that's where your attention was focused. And I, and I think we get distracted by so many things, different drummers doing different things. Oh, yeah. In a drumming world and drumming community, like a drummer's drummer and all those things that at certain ages you're attracted, well, at all ages, you're like, oh, wow, um, I love watching this on YouTube or listening to this player or whatever. Right. But knowing what's important and what feels good gets you, that's that's not only fun to play, Mm -hmm. but it's what gets you work. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and even like the, the backbeat thing, it's like I... I don't really think about that. I, I mean, I know there are guys like, oh, you gonna you can push it. You know, mm-hmm. we live in a world of I think it's three or six milliseconds, whether you're pushing the beat or pulling it back. Or, mm-hmm. and I remember um, watching an interview with J.R. Robinson. Another like he's played on so many just straight up groovy records. His entire goal is just nail the click to the wall. 
his kick mm-hmm. and snare are done, and and from other players that have played with him are like oh yeah when jr plays the click disappear, disappears well wow. he doesn't push it he doesn't pull it it's just dead on mm-hmm. and that was always my goal practicing mm-hmm. was and the the other thing was at at school they don't necessarily preach you play with a metronome everything with a metronome it's just like you need to get your time together they never really told you how hmm. so i ended up just playing the records that i knew were cut to click tracks for the most part yeah i yeah. mean I, uh, there's a couple there was a david nail song um let it rain i think it's called okay or let it rain down let it rain mm-hmm. um I I remember listening to that. I'm like, this is so groovy. The drum sounds, the production, just the playing. It's Fred Eltringham, I believe, mm-hmm. playing, and he's just a groovy, groovy dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one day I got curious and I put it in Pro Tools and I gritted it out. It's they didn't cut to a click. There's no way they cut to a click. Yeah. That song moves and breathes, but you would never know it. You just it didn't. It just felt great the entire time. All the dudes in the room. Yeah. And that's that's my goal. That was just like it doesn't whether there is a click or not, make it feel good. But on the backside of that, moving to Nashville, I remember getting my first gig. And they're like, "Okay, cool, man. Do you have a, do you have a click? We're on stage doing sound check. Um, where's the line for your click?" I'm like, "What's a click? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Do you do you have one? Like we we have the tempos and stuff. We can give it to you." I'm like, "Oh, I mean, I I learned the songs." Okay, yeah, cool, but do, do you have a click? Because we right. have click in the ears. Right. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I don't have one. Like, okay, well, make sure for the next gig you have one. And through Twitter, I had talked to Rich Redmond a lot. Yeah. We had finally met up and had coffee, so and he gave me his number, and Rich has been so instrumental in, yeah. in my upbringing, in the Nashville mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Immediately, it's just like... Hey, Rich, um, they're asking me for a click, and I'm freaking out, man. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to – this is bad. This is, And he's like, calm down. Go to Guitar Center. Get this, this, and this. Call me back. Walk me through. It was like the Boss BR-16 or something, gotcha. whatever he uses with Aldine. Yeah. And it got me through the gig, and, mm-hmm. and that was it. But learning to play with that so that you – you still had your identity. You still had your groove and pocket because a lot of guys play with it and they become robotic. Right. right. Or, you know, everything's dead on and it's, it just, it feels sterile. It feels, it doesn't breathe. Right. Right. And, um, I still don't know how I do it. I, it's just one of those. So are you using, targets. even when people aren't asking for a click, Yeah, but there's, okay. Cause yeah. it's, it's even the point where like I'll have an artist that's like, Oh man, yeah, don't, don't use a click. I hate drummers on click. I'm like, yeah. Okay, cool. Guess what I do. Yeah, I've like we'll, we'll play the they, song. They don't hate drummers on. They hate drummers that can't play with the click, but they don't know that. They don't know that. Yeah. Right, right. So it's it's ended up, you know, um, and I don't use it every gig, and I don't. It's it's more of a how I if I don't know the songs that well, like if it's a whiskey jam set, right? I won't necessarily use it. I'll just learn the song. It's three songs. Yeah, I'll just right. learn the song. Right. But other times it's like, hey, can you play tomorrow at so and so whatever? I'm like. If I have the click to rely on, then I can actually be an artist and like play things. I I, I kind of go between that. Like I'm working with this new artist now, and the band leader really wants the click mm-hmm. with everything, and I'm happy with it because it's like I feel like it's just one less thing I have to worry about. Right. And I know there's this big debate. Um, you know, it's like using click live and different things like that. But I mean, within this work environment that we're in. There, unless it's your band, unless you're starting with something, that's that's kind of what you have to be. You can say, 
all day long, man, I don't think it's cool to play to a click. But right. if if that's your if your job is to do sessions and work with different artists in this music community, mm-hmm. then to be able to play with a click and play it musically and not, you know, rock the boat, mm-hmm. then that's a, that's a thing to do. That is, yeah. So, but what about gigs where, say, because the, the most ideal thing is to have an in-ear mix and to be able to kind of find that balance with a click, right? at least for me, uh, when I'm playing with a click. But if, but if there's, say, just a run and gun and... Uh, it's always like, well, I like to have the click, or they want to have the click, but we're literally running on stage, and there's a, mm-hmm. there's a just a rough mix on a wedge. Do I do one ear in, one ear out? What do you do? I've I've done um, I I I have a set of in ears like the yeah. custom old deals, and I've done one in, one out, and that works, but the. Uh, the other problem I have is because of my recording background, I, ca- I need to save my ears. Yeah, so it's really yeah. hard walking off stage in one ear. You can't hear anything. I know. Of. I know. It messes and you the, up. Yeah. So I've recently, and I, for some reason, I shied away from using them. The, the iPod, uh, the AirPod, the, the, they're, the, they're like the new wired headphones that came with like the five or the yeah six. yeah i have those right they're like more ergonomically shaped than the f- perfectly circular ones they don't kill your ears mm-hmm. and they sound okay they don't sound terrible right um i've used those because they're actually vented on the outsides so you can have both ears in and still hear what's going on plus the click coming through your phone or whatever it is yeah so that's that's been my go-to and they're like 20 bucks whatever yeah. it is yeah you can toss them in your bag do whatever but that's been saving me not necessarily on volume because it's still fairly loud. Right. It's pro- they probably cut maybe like 10 dB or something. Not, nothing significant for like ear protection. Right. But if I'm doing a throw and go gig like that or... And it's maybe four or five songs. Right. It's duration more than volume. Exactly. That does does the damage. Right. Yeah. It's... Right. it's Well, volume will do the... It's just the louder the volume, the shorter time you expose There you go. It, yeah. Right. Right. Um, but that's... I've been using that and... And or if I have a Broadway gig, most of my Broadway bands love using a click because mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about it. They're, you know, they get to do their thing. Everybody's it's like a safety blanket because mm-hmm. everybody's comfortable. It's, but no one else is on the click except for me. Right. So from time to time, I'll just turn it off and see what they say. Like, I'm just like, hey, so <laughs> did you guys feel anything? And then there was one time I did it. It was like uh, we were doing the Wallflowers tune, um, oh. One Headlight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so the great. bass player... Uh, looked over at me and he was like, dude, we're really locking in. And I was just like, he's like, are you using the click? I was like, oh shit, no, I, I forgot. Sorry. Well, he's like, no, 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 that was good. That was good. I was like, okay, well, that just yeah, worked. Right. Like that one, the one time that yeah. I didn't use it. Yeah. Um, but we, we always do lock in. He's one of my favorite bass players in town. And Awesome. Um, but yeah, using it like down there, I'll have like a little mixer, um, like yeah. a Mackie mixer. Mm-hmm. So I get an XLR and mm-hmm. a mono mix from them. And then my, whether it's my iPad or my phone or whatever goes into that. And I have my adjustment of the click track. Exactly. And then volume of the mix. Mm-hmm. And if they need a send, I just have a split with a DI and yeah. everyone else gets it. Right. Um, and then even like the, the live at Thompson Square gig, everything is click except for like two songs and those are moving targets depending on shauna like she starts out a lot of them just vocally yeah 
So wherever she sits, whether it's a little faster, a little slower, we just kind of take that and run with it. Right. Do you ever use uh, live BPM or any other apps that kind of... just started last week. Okay. Someone just hipped me to that. I was like, oh, that is so cool. Yeah, yeah. Because I turned it on. I'm like, well, how does this work? There's not even any uh, controls or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I I did a Broadway gig uh, Friday. Yeah. Um, And I just, I guess you you just leave it there. So I just left it on the seat over there. And I was like, two songs in, I look over, I'm like, oh... That's really cool. It's just tracking me, and I don't know what it's, it's doing. It's really but, yeah. scarily accurate. Yeah. I mean, uh, for years, I used a, a trigger on my snare drum that would that would count the backbeats. I can't remember, even remember Dr. Yes, yes, I have one of those, too. Yeah. And I lost it. <laughs> I had a couple different generations of it, and then mm-hmm. the, the, this thing came out, and I use a belt clip for a phone that I attached to my chart book, attached to a hi-hat stand. Uh-huh. And uh, I'll do gigs where if uh, I'll have a, an old boss drum machine for a click hmm. and um, and then, then the live BPM thing, because some songs are clicks and some songs aren't. Yeah. And the thing about, the dangerous thing about it is you become obsessed with it, you know, mm-hmm. staying in time. But the beauty of it is that you find consistency, especially if if you're working with people that want to go song to song real fast. Right. And it's not an artist thing. And it, it, like, if it is a Broadway thing where you're, you're playing covers for a bunch of drunk people right. and you need to go from song to song to song. And it's not a real, like uh, it's, it's not a band with a song list and this no, is the no, order. No, it's mostly but it's, random. Yeah. It's just random stuff. And it's like, and, and you're ending one song and the person turns around, Hey, we're going to play this song next. You've got to start the groove while they're talking. Yeah. Or you're you know, just like, uh, 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 how yeah. does, how does that one go again? Uh, uh, right, right. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And here's the tempo. And sometimes while they're talking, I'll, I'll just click my sticks next to the live BPM thing and get, it works that way. I can, yeah. Oh, okay. And it will, it takes like a couple of seconds, but then it'll pick up and I'm yeah. like, ooh, I'm feeling it too slow. Okay, it's going to be a little bit faster than that. Mm. As opposed to trying to dial it in. With your, with your Yeah, uh, but I'm clicking. Yeah. And it's funny because while I'm doing that, the person, sometimes they'll go, oh, just a second, just a second. Like they think I'm ready They're to count right, it yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, I'm yeah. still talking. I'm like, I know, I know. So I'm real <laughs> quietly just trying to get the phone to pick up. Yeah. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. I moved to Nashville. I mean, I knew one person. I didn't move with a gig. Okay. Okay. Um, it probably took me six months before. Uh, I didn't even, I did like one Broadway gig, which was an absolute train wreck. <laughs> I didn't know any of the songs. And then the guy, the front guy was one of my buddies that had just learned all of those songs. Okay. I think we got to about 15 of them and then we had to restart from the top of the list because okay. we ran out of songs. <laughs> it was a tequila, it was 
it was Cadillac Ranch then. Yeah. It wasn't Tequila Cowboy yet. Cadillac Ranch. And to the point where the sound guy, and there was nobody in there, sound yeah. guy was like, hey, so you guys have started like through the same set list. This is like the third time now. I think you guys should just go home. Oh, God. And there was no bass pay. And then the bass player was like, hey, man, you promised me $15 for gas. Oh, and the front oh man's like, dude, God. I don't have $15. Do you? <laughs> so I ended up having to pay $15 to play my first Broadway gig. Awesome. But the, the, the road gig, um, it was, uh, I have my buddy in town, Chris Marquardt. He plays for Cole Swindell. Right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. He was like my big brother moving to town. He gave me the lowdown yeah. about what Chris, what a great player. Great dude. Phenomenal player. I still mm-hmm. look up to him like mm-hmm. daily. I haven't seen him in years because he's so busy. Yeah. But, um, I mean, he was the guy to sit down and be like, look, you're timing shit. Or uh-huh. this, like, you need to work on this, you need to work on that. Mm-hmm. And he really brought me up to the next level without being mean, without being, you know, he was just there for me, yeah. you know, awesome. for, for anything. But he hooked me up on my first gig with uh, Glenn Templeton. Okay. And that was, I think their drummer was quitting for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I jumped in with a week's notice. Hmm. And that that was the that was the click gig that was like, hey, where's okay. your click? Right. Um, and I was with them for probably from April 2012 till about December, whenever we stopped touring. Mm-hmm. And then they he never really he took a year off and I had to find other things to yeah. do. And I played with uh, a, a couple like bar gig ba- bar band gigs, mm-hmm. okay. or like the traveling, like hey, we play all the Toby Keiths. In Denver and Cincinnati and whatever, oh, okay. travel. Yeah, right. Somebody's SUV in a trailer. Sure, sure. Oh my God. So <laughs> I mean, going going through all of those, and um, be, I got lucky to be on on uh, retainer with another artist that was supposed to be signed to Broken Bow, and then something happened, and that didn't happen. So, like, retainer for five months was really really nice because I didn't have to do anything, and we just had to rehearse twice a week. Yeah, and we played two gigs, I think. Okay. Yeah. So it was just it, it was that that was amazing, and then losing that, and then I got picked up by Josh Grayson, okay. which apparently everyone in town has played for. Might be the only one that hasn't. Played. Okay. <laughs> but played for him for like six or eight months, yeah, and then uh, stopped getting called, hmm. and then I think a month into that, like Victor called me for for Thompson Square gig. Okay. Had you played with Victor before? Oh yeah, we had been playing since 2013, maybe. Oh, wow. there was a a Swedish artist by the name of Jamie Meyer. Okay, that came to town, and uh, one of my other drummer buddies was supposed to, or Keo was playing with him. I think. Okay, so for one some reason Keo couldn't do the gig, re- referred somebody else. They couldn't do the gig, and then I got called. Mm-hmm. So I was a sub for a sub, mm-hmm. and then um, between the three of us. Or uh, Victor, that's the first time I met Victor and Anthony from Thompson Square, okay. and then Jamie, another keyboard player. Okay. Um, and so since then, we've been playing together, whether it's that gig or whether it's um, anything else they do. Sometimes I play with uh, the, the Love Electric, right? which is Anthony and Victor's side project off of Thompson Square. And, and uh, we, we've just been like, they've been my best friends Yeah. for however many years you know and and musically we all have such a respect for each other 
we'll still go out. Like, Anthony will play with a different drummer for Love Electric. It'll be Myron Howell or it'll be mm-hmm. Larry Babb or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I I love those guys. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go watch either way. And I love watching those guys yeah. slay it. Mm. Myron's a monster. Yeah. And it it, do, it doesn't matter to me because it's they're still my friends. It, right, like, there's right. no hard feelings for anything. Sure, I call them for gigs if somebody needs a bass player, or yeah. they call me or yeah. whatever. Like so, I've known them for a few years, and I always knew Victor was a Thompson Square guy. And then I think 2014 or 15, uh, Anthony joined, and so then they were gone all the time. So then I was finding other gigs for other people. Mm-hmm. And um, then Victor called me for an audition. I think it's 2016. No. 2015. End of 2015. Okay. They had an audition for drummers. Yeah. Uh, someone had dropped out. They had an extra spot open. So he was like, hey, I know a guy. I think he'd be okay. So he called me. I came in and did it. I didn't get the audition. Hmm. Uh, one of the other bigger drums. I was up against like the who's who of the town of town, hmm. and it was that alone was intimidating. Me walking in with a huge dude walking out, and then me walking out and somebody even bigger walking in. I'm like, okay, this is who I'm up against. Thanks, Victor. <laughs> <laughs> but um, through that, it was the only reason I was able to get it again when the spot opened. Okay, because they they knew who I was. They weren't going right. to take someone random. Yeah. Um, and Victor was very instrumental in making all that yeah. happen. And you know, dude, Victor is very picky about drummers, man. I've I mean, I've come to find yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he loves great drummers. Mm-hmm. So, and and I know that that's happened often before. And when you go into an audition and maybe it doesn't happen, sometimes right. there is it, it happens down the road, right. You know, um, so you make an impression no matter what the situation is, it, it could come back, you know, in a positive way. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. You know, we had this option that seemed like this was a good fit. So we went with this guy instead of that guy. But then next round, hey, well, who was that? You know, it happens. Um, you brought up Fred Eltringham. What was that song? Oh, uh, it's David Nail. David uh, Nail, yeah. He, uh, when he was. When I uh, interviewed him on this, and he talked about working with T-Bone Burnett. Oh, man, T-Bone, and, yeah. And recording an album. It just, just re- reminded me of that, that he goes, yeah, he goes, it was, it was it was crazy. Like, no click, nothing. Like, he'd find an old song and play part of the song and said, this is kind of the vibe I'm going for. Mm-hmm. And we'd all kind of groove along with it. And then he'd stop the record, you know, stop the song, you know, someone else's song. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, let's just, let's just groove on that vibe. And, and, and then that's how we would record the song and then be done and that's the next song right there's no no click and I was like what? no click that's great a friend of a friend recommended me to do some playing with this duo Dixie Jade oh yeah and uh, they had some stuff online and they were like hey here's some of the original stuff here's some of this stuff and so the original stuff that they the recordings they gave me were like drum loops and and drum machine things Mm -hmm. 
And yet when I saw the stuff that they had, because I saw you in the promo, like the very first thing that they texted me, like, well, kind of here's our vibe. And there was, I think it was 12th and Porter. Yeah, like yeah, that. a little showcase thing. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's Victor. And I, that's the drummer that plays with Thompson Square. And then there was some live stuff of you playing. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. And it's like, that's the song that I just heard that they gave me, just the audio. But this is real drums. Yeah. What's leading me to this question is, this new artist I'm working with, they're, I'm hoping this is just pre-production stuff because there's a bunch of drum machine, non-human drummer oh stuff that they're giving me for this outlaw country stuff. Like, it's okay. not, it's, it doesn't fit. It just, right. I'm sorry, it just doesn't <laughs> fit. But they're saying, well, here's the song. Let's have this ready for rehearsal. And I'm listening to this part and I'm like, there's like three drummers going on. Oh, in no. this part. And I remember the Dixie Jade stuff had a little bit of that too. Yeah. So what was your approach to that? Do you remember? We so I I was lucky in that they were very tight with their producer, mm-hmm. the guy that did all the tracks for their their record that they had out at that point and then all the stuff for the the live show. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple of songs to the point where there were drum fills and cymbals and everything in there. And I'm like Dude, I I can't do. Do you want me to just hit a kick drum? Like, what do you want me to do? Mime things? Yeah. So it was. Oh, tracks. Oh yeah, tracks wise. Like the, the there was, uh, we we ran tracks for for their show and um, but like, I, we go through rehearsal and like, wait a minute, there's a gigantic tom fill, a, t- a bar and a half tom fill that I'm not playing because the tracks are playing. Yeah. What like in the middle of me playing like a pocket groove? I'm like, what is what is this? We can't have that. Yeah. Like no 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 no. You just you well it's like a pop gig. We'll we'll just uh, you know, just play around it. I'm like, it that's not play around a bowl. You can't just do that. Not like a loop, like a real percussive loop. No no no, not like a, a something you add to. Like this was a drum part, kick drum, yes. snare drum, yeah, some yeah, hi hat yeah. things. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I dude, I'm playing these parts. They're not exactly what you programmed. They're not going to be the sounds that mm-hmm. you wanted. Mm-hmm. Unless I can get, unless you can give me those sounds and I have an SPDS X <laughs> with a, you know, a kick drum mm-hmm. uh, trigger thing. And I can get, you know, some of the sounds some of the time. But it's like, you want a drummer, a real drummer with real drums. Yeah. This is, you kind of got to let me do what I want to do. Or what what I see fit artistically, and then if it's completely against what you guys are doing, or if you want something different, then we work, you know, yeah. we we collaborate on that to get to the point where it's like this sounds good for, to you, and for me, I'm not killing my soul trying to emulate a drum part that's not really like a backwards tom fill that can't actually be played. <laughs> I you, if I spent a month learning it, I'd probably be able to play it, but right. like, just no, that's not going to work. Yeah. But so times like that, and it, it probably happens to a lot of people where they get uh, a production and it's all programmed drums. I think, uh, and that's what is inspiring me to ask you this mm-hmm. because I think that's going to happen more and more. Right. And especially all these artists, they realize tracks are a very powerful tool especially when it's you and three people on stage, yep. you could sound like 30. Mm-hmm. So it's all about working with and hoping to God that they're, they're, uh, the artist producer relationship is good enough where 
hey, we're going to do these tracks, but you need to take this, this, and this out yeah. and only leave the shaker in or only leave this part. Or mm-hmm. the intro has a bunch of synthetic kick drums that sound great. Okay, we're going to keep those. Because it's a couple hours work on the producer side. You say synthetic. I like that. It, I mean, to, to Because you have to do all this diplomatically right. so that you can get to where you know it needs to be. Exactly. So when you use words like, well, this is synthetic, this is, I can't recreate this, but you have this other sound, I'm going to be there to recreate that. That's why you've hired me. Right. Right. And that's, that's the other thing too. You have to respect, well, that, that producer probably spent weeks or days or however much time he spent creating those sounds. And he's very proud of that. And you like that, that's the, where the recording part of me comes in. It's like, well, that takes a lot of work and a lot of pride and you don't want to take that out of the production because mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's not your sounds. It's not your production fully. Yeah. So it's a give and take of like, Hey dude, that kick drum sounds amazing. We need that in the tracks mm-hmm. supplementing what I'm doing. Or like this is 808 drop that has a cool tr- something about it. That's mm-hmm. like, it's not a generic sound that you, you know, spent time on and it's a very give and take kind of thing but you, and you, i mean it's it's also up to us to get close to the sounds they're doing like if it sounds like a nickelback record like okay i'm bringing out my bell brass snare drum i'm bringing out a tw- the 24 or if it's you know more vintage vibey things it's like mm. okay well i've got a little slinger line kit the 22 yeah 13 16 but mm-hmm. it doesn't like to be tuned low it's just a little higher mm-hmm. tuning mm-hmm. more of a mid-rangey stuff and that's what gets that sound mm-hmm but it's all about collaborating and you have to be so diplomatic. Yeah. And it's, it's not even, it's not like antagonizing someone. It's just like being respectful in what you do, what they do. Yeah. You both are on the same level. That's it. Well, and, 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 and give them assurances. Like Mm -hmm. you've called me in to do this and I'm here for you. Right. Um, we're going to work together. This is your production this is your writing, whatever it is. Right. But because I'm the drummer that you've decided to use, I want to be here to help recreate this thing for you. I right. mean, and I've worked with producers who were drummers or band leaders who were drummers as well. Right. So it, there's that. Um, but you, yeah, you, it, it is all about kind of respecting the vision, mm-hmm. even if it's not this even if it's not something you would have necessarily done. Totally, yeah. Production-wise, but especially when you're put in that position. Because um, I've seen the opposite being done. Oh, Why yeah. did you do this? It's like, no, 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 you, you don't want to use that. And then the person's like, what? Yeah, then they get hurt and all of a sudden, like, I mean, everybody's... that guy. <laughs> yeah, everybody's got, got an ego to a certain point, and it, whether or not they're they're you know, so forward about it that it's like, no, 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 that's my, uh, that's, it's going to be there. Or it's like, oh no, like what? You, you, you don't like that? Like, why don't you like that? Mm-hmm. You, you just, we're all artists in the end. You right, have to be right, right. respectful of everybody's mm-hmm. art, you know. You mentioned before that one of the compliments that you get is that your drums sound good. Mm-hmm. And, um, You've also mentioned several times that you can have the same set of drums and it comes down to the player Mm -hmm. a lot of times um, where you're hitting the drum. But I I, want to dissect that a little bit um, as far as your approach to tuning, your approach to let's just let's just take the snare drum. Okay. How in, in in a live situation, is there something that you do that, you know, it's like this works. So on, on the road, my main, my main snare for most gigs, I have a, a 
uh, Chrome over brass Supra, one of the new ones. Mm. Um, the six and a half by 14. Yeah. And it pretty much is like the Swiss army knife. It does everything. Yeah. I know everybody loves the aluminum versions, which is like a Chrome over acrylite, yeah. which is fantastic as well. It's got a little more, uh, bottom end mm. and, but it's a little quieter. It doesn't cut as much. Mm. So, um, like for me, I, I've I'm an Evans, Evans endorser. Okay. So I've got a my go-to choice is like a power center reverse dot on top, and then I've got the Hazy 300 on the bottom, mm-hmm. and it's the 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 bottom's pretty dang tight. It's it's not choking the drum, but it's it's if you were trying to press the film in, it doesn't budge. It gotcha. doesn't move. And then I've got a 42 strand snare. I was going to yeah. say on those deep drums, the wide snares, I know are really popular. Yeah. And yeah. especially live, it just gives you, it, I mean, depending on if your engineer uses a, a bottom snare mic or just the top, if it's just the top, you get your whole snare drum sound. Mm-hmm. And if it's a top and bottom, they you might get a little more snare than they want, but right. it, it works and it sounds great all the time. And, uh, I usually stick, uh, tend to stick to like medium low tunings. Yeah. I don't like the The higher stuff for me. And I, I'm, I don't know if it's wrong or right. Like for most part, if you, if you tune a drum pretty high in the, the higher register, they all start to sound the same. Yeah. I, I, I agree. So like a wood drum cranked, it will sound like a metal drum cranked, but like the, the character of the metal or the wood, whatever kind of lives in the middle or lower tunings, mm-hmm. um, that, that I've experienced. Yeah. So it, that's kind of where I leave it. Yeah. It's that, like, it's a good point. So I, someone played the drum, at a sound check one time, like, dude, that's the perfect Nashville tuning. Giant air quotes, Nashville yeah. tuning. Like, <laughs> like, oh, okay, I get it. It's like that's the typical sound you hear on a, a record. Right. It's like right. a medium low tuning, yeah. not crazy low, and and not you know, it it just sits right in the track. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean the the stick I use is a fairly hefty stick. Gotcha. Um, it's it's basically the the old Benny Greb um, Promark stick. It's a I think it's like 0. 0.6 thick and 16 inches long. Okay. So it's like between a 5B and a 2B. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, it's, uh, it's a little heftier, but then I don't have to work as hard. Yeah. And, but it, it gives you the beefy sound. Cause like, even like I could give you the stick I use now and then like an 8A or a 5A or something. And you can hit the drum the exact same way. And it just brings out the bottom end, the thicker the wood is. Right. The thicker the stick is. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't sound as tinny. You don't get as much overtones. And like for me, I don't know how I ended up doing it, but I pretty much hit dead center on okay. snare and toms and everything. Mm-hmm. It, it's pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, that is mostly like 99% rim shots all night long. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. it's interesting because I've become more conscious about that and wondering if I need to get away from that. But I just love the sound. And I think I was mm-hmm. kind of going around and around about it. And I know that there's a trend towards playing soft and in the middle of the drum right. for certain types of sounds that you're oh, going yeah. for. And, and stuff that I, the recordings that I've been listening to more and more recently. And I'm like, I know that. But I have this natural tendency to just just want to put it right where that I can just do that rim shot mm-hmm. and get that big wide sound. And I just, I don't know, it just works. And, um, but to be able to do 
different things for different songs and re- sessions. That's where, that's I where think, it comes out. Yeah, his playing dead center, fairly not fairly quietly, but just you're not killing the drum in the center without a rim shot. It it does record beautifully. Yeah, you get more body of a drum. It doesn't quite cut through and makes it, it sits easier behind yeah. a vocal and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. But for say like a Thompson Square gig or yeah. most live gigs. Mm-hmm. It's a balls out rock show. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not a point in this. I mean, there's one song that I switched to mallets and I'm like being all sensitive and artsy, but most of the time I'm pounding the crap out of everything. Mm-hmm. And Victor will tell you that, uh, RJ Anthony, like it's a straight up. Most of the songs are four on the floor. It's all high energy. Yeah. And honestly, like the, the rim shot is a, for me, it's, it's just an artistic choice. I, I like the way that sounds, but also, how hard I have to hit the drum and to make it look, you know, all the, I can't do stick tricks. I tried my entire life. I can't do them. My hands don't do them. But so sticks are in the air at at most, most of the time playing bigger beats or whatever. And the rim shot actually dissipates a lot of that energy into the drum, into the rim. Cause like I've never had hand problems. I don't have uh, tendonitis. Yeah. My hands never hurt after playing no matter how long, I've been very lucky. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a lot to do with not holding on to it, letting the stick do all the work. Yeah, yeah. And the energy has to go someplace. So if you hold on to it, it goes straight up your arm. Right. If you don't do rim shots and hit it really hard, you still have to hold on to the stick so it doesn't flip out of your hand. That's a good point. And it goes straight down. It, that's where everybody gets problems. Oh, I so see, yeah. if you're doing rim shots at a really loud gig most of the energy of the stick goes straight through the rim into the drum, into the stand of the mm-hmm. floor. It's becoming harder and harder to make a living playing. Mm-hmm. Even even at the, the top level, mm-hmm. everybody's trying to scale back. People aren't working as much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I just recently I, I've known a, a couple of friends that were like, yeah, we, we just got laid off off of really long-term gigs. They're like, well, are you kidding me? Mm. Everybody, they're either going a new direction or yeah. the money's not there or the sale. Like the industry's hurting and you kind of still have to diversify try to figure out how many ways can you make money without, without it being just one source. Yeah. So even without touring, even without the record sales plummeting and all that stuff, publishing houses still need demos. Songwriters are always going to keep writing songs. Yep. Um, there's always going to be the YouTube child or, or man or woman or whatever that needs that, you know, not thinks they can rec- sing or th- mm-hmm. thinks they can play an instrument, or whatever, but they were going to want to record yep. and they may have a, a day job or something that allows them to have a budget, Yep. you know, and where they're going to come. It's, mm-hmm. we're still music city. We're still king mm-hmm. of recording studios Yeah. and they'll still come and record. I heard of someone doing, uh, like uh like birthday parties like oh yeah have your birthday party at my studio and come and record you and all your friends and it's a day rate a nor- like a normal session rate wow so five six hundred dollars and like oh yeah you know bring it whoever just you know keep the drinks off the console and yeah let's do that sure yeah because we're also a tourist town you have to oh yeah um I, hopefully nobody kills me about saying this on the podcast but um <laughs> It's an idea for everybody. It's just like, it's, 
there's enough work to go around for everybody. It's just finding it and exploiting, not exploit. Yeah. Basically exploiting what are our, what are our strengths as a community, as a town and what can we offer to make everybody money? Right. Right. Well, and for, for different music communities around the country and around the world, the industry is always changing. It always has. And those who adapt or find creative ways to adapt survive. Right. Uh, if, if you choose to do so, you talk about diversification. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, man, you're, first of all, you're an incredible player. So I think that <laughs> there's lots of work for you with super respectable musicians that are already on your side. Mm-hmm. What's the rest of your year look like? I have no idea. <laughs> I have I have one gig this weekend. I got two gigs next weekend, and I am still open for the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they don't they don't let us know until you know a week or two before, so we we don't really have. You don't have a schedule yet. No. Yeah, but they're taking time. Thompson Square is taking time off. I think one of the they're they want to do. So over the winter, they've been doing um, acoustic touring. Mm-hmm. So just the two of them with uh, another artist, uh, Jake Rose, I think his name is. Okay. Um, but they've been doing that a lot, and they really like it. So I think they're going to be doing uh, a bunch of that this year. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for me and all the other guys, it's, they don't use the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a crew guy, maybe an in-ears guy if, they, if they're doing that. But mm-hmm. um, So we kind of have to find other things to do <laughs> yeah yeah you know though a lot of times when that thing that you come to rely on goes away mm-hmm. or becomes less available it puts you in front of a whole new group of people or oh, yeah. new environments new situations that help to add to the diversification that you're absolutely about. i mean they're they're so uh, to use them as an example they're doing what's best for their career yeah I can't knock them for that. No. So, and, but the, the opposite side of that is like, now I have so much free time mm-hmm. that I've been going to hanging out at whiskey jam, meeting people like, or, or, uh, going to everybody's shows that I can or, or house parties or stuff that I would have never done. Yeah. Had I been busy. Yeah. And I mean, Facebook has those little notifications. It's like, I made 500 friends last month. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? What? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Just through meeting people and just, you need to do this or, uh, my sister does this and she needs to, uh, her friend wants to come to Nashville to record or so, like anything and everything or, Hey, yeah. If, if Thompson square ever comes through here, you know, let me know. I'll get tickets Yeah. or, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, just, being out there and and being known and i have i have a few drum, drummer and musician friends that are just known by everybody and play with everybody in town mm-hmm. and i i want to be one of those guys mm-hmm. like it doesn't matter what walk of musician you are whether the top or the bottom like you know who i am or you've heard of me or some, yeah. something like yeah not not an ego thing and not a Oh, I'm better than anybody else. It's just that if people know about you, there's just more chances you'll get called for whatever the gig is. Uh, totally. I mean, there's a reason behind it. And, and I think that if you're able to take advantage of the time that you have now, mm-hmm. it will pay off. Yes. And then you don't have to do as much work. Then just based on your work itself, mm-hmm. people know your name. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. another part of our job that no one really talks about is that you are a salesperson, yeah. but you're selling yourself. Yeah. 
and you're selling yourself in a market of people that know when they spot they 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 can feel when someone's bullshitting them like yes yeah. you can't yeah. you have to be genuine you have to be actual friends with people like work mm-hmm. comes second mm-hmm. relationships come first mm-hmm. and no one talks about that in town or the, and even even at school they're just like oh yeah you you mean you you get out of here and you'll you'll get a gig no mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way yeah yeah you work yourself up from the bottom and and yeah. you know it's 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 a very much um you have to become a people's person yeah for sure and, and it and it becomes more difficult as you get older and depending on all your you know obligations that you have so mm-hmm. what i'm saying is when when you have the time to do it you know you can and we met man it's like we met in person yeah at a party at a hang that you know it's like it's it's good to get out it's good to go do those things oh, yeah. and be seen and be heard because you can be online but i mean online stuff is there's just so much on there that yeah it just becomes white noise after a while and that's the thing like people realize that like instagram and facebook marketing was the next move so everyone's doing it yeah but because they're doing that less and less facetime is being spent so now we have to go back to straight up facetime handshakes coffees lunches yeah that's what's getting the that's what's getting the jobs now or that's what's getting a just things done, whether right, it be right, relationships right. or, right. you know, everyone's texting and emailing and, yeah. oh, yeah, come to my show on, on Instagram. Yeah. And I do it. You know, yeah. everyone does it. Yeah. But at the same time, who shows up? Uh, the people that I saw last week. Mm. Or, you know. Well, I always I, I always feel like this podcast gives me an opportunity to do that. So I get a chance to hang out and get to oh, know yeah. you a little bit better through this. Um, so it's it's my it's my way out. But but then, you know, there's there's the uh, there's the loud jams coming up. There's different things like that. There's the drumming community stuff. Right. Uh, there's running into people, even if uh, I'm down on Broadway or whatever. So I mean, it's like, there's ways to, you know, take it, take advantage of the community that you're in to kind of like just make sure that you're seen. Because if you're not seen, they either think that you've moved away, you've quit, you're dead. <laughs> you, you have to stay on the front of people's minds. And I mean, I've experienced it myself. Like if someone, uh, someone asked me like, hey, I'm putting together a band, do you know other players or a drummer or whatever yeah. the it's it's not like i know the guys like that i've talked to recently like hey man i need work yeah and that's that's who i recommend or like but it's it's only the recent ones and I it's to in go the top of your phone. brain yeah right whoever so, you see the the most recently yeah i was just telling my wife uh, i was crossing the street illegally not at a crosswalk <laughs> <laughs> to my car and um, somebody honked the horn, but it wasn't like an aggressive honk. I said, "That's kind of like there was plenty of room." Mm-hmm. And I get in my car and I get a text, and it's from the person that honked at me. <laughs> I said, "Hey, I just you just ran in front of front of me. Hey, yeah, man, yeah. you know how's it going?" And I was like, "Oh, hey, I know, I know her." Yeah. And then like the next day, she said, "Hey, are you free to play this gig on exactly. Saturday?" Exactly. Yep. Because. I jumped in front of her car, and next thing you know, she's calling, like, I need a drummer. Oh, yeah, I saw Matt uh, running out in the middle of the street. <laughs> that That is it. And for, for anybody listening or whatever that's on, you know, Gig Finder and, and all those things, it's like, those are great resources, and you can get gigs. I, I mean, I've personally never gotten a gig off of it, but mm-hmm. it's, they're out there, but you'll you'll get way more you'll have way more success and way more fun 
because you'll get to go talk to people, interact. I mean, yeah, it may cost you a drink or two or whatever, but mm-hmm. that's all part of it. It's yeah. all investing in your future yeah. versus sitting on your computer waiting for something to show up. Yeah, it doesn't happen. happen. No, it ain't going to happen, man. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you uh, hanging out with me, man. Yeah, dude. And talking. Anytime. It was super fun. This is great. Yeah, I love this. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, dude. So as I had mentioned in the conversation, uh, I had a chance to first discover Elton uh, through a gig that was offered me and the people were like, hey, here's our vibe, here's what's going on, we need somebody to fill in for our regular drummer and here's some YouTube of a showcase we did. So that was my introduction to Elton and I was like, whoa, this guy's great. And immediately I thought, man, he's he the time feel, the backbeat, all those things that just we we talked about uh would just immediately jumped out at me and i think over time as people discover his time feel and what he can do uh he will just have more work than he can handle so i appreciate him taking the time to speak to us as always stay tuned next week for zach albetta's interview many thanks goes to mike jackson for his technical assistance Once again, you can find us on iTunes where you can subscribe, leave a comment. This always helps us grow. Hey, everyone. We want to tell you about a new podcast we've become friends with. It's the Music Mensch Podcast. It's an informative and entertaining new interview show that is devoted to giving musicians the tools they need to thrive and survive in the music business. Creator and host Matt Van Heil produces a weekly spotlight for professional guest artists to give advice on a specialized topic. From practice tips and the importance of mentorship to self-investment and securing your financial future, The Mensch has got you covered. It's the knowledge you've been looking for without endless searching. Go to www.mattvanheilmusic.com slash podcast where you can find The Mensch blog with summaries of each episode highlighting informative talking points. The Music Mensch podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. That's Matt Van Heil, M-A-T-T-V-A-N-H-I-E-L, music.com slash podcast. Thanks to everyone so far that has purchased a Working Drummer Podcast shirt. We are selling those for only $10, so uh, check those out on workingdrummer.net. You can find the shirts, and we have all the sizes. So thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.